Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted December 12, 2022, titled, Did Matthew Botch Christmas? Featuring Bart Ehrman. The critics of the virgin birth idea have some legitimate points to make. Wow. That's quite an admission from a committed Bible scholar like Dr. Heiser. But really only because the way we talk about the virgin birth is very easy for them to pick at. Whose fault is that? Sounds like both sides of the virgin debates have things to learn today. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. It was just a year ago, in the Advent season, where Professor Bart Ehrman joined me in responding to Lee Strobel's Case for Christmas, a video that dealt, in part, with the notion of copycat virgin stories. Was there a claim that Mithras was born on December the 25th? Sure, but so what? I think the reason people can point to Mithras as a forerunner of Jesus is because we know nothing about Mithras. <laughs> so you can make up anything you want. You go on the internet and you'll find all of these claims. Oh, you're not Mithras. Yeah, you know, and he had 12 disciples and he was born on December 25th. And these wise men came and visited him and he's born of a virgin. And there was a star. The actual Mithraic religion has no literary source. And so where are you getting December 25th from here? You know, and so as a scholar, I'm absolutely concerned to see what the similarities are between Jesus and other divine men and angels. There are other stories floating around the Roman world where somebody is born to the union of a divine being and a mortal being. My question in this seminar is, are any of these women virgins? Are they women who've never had sex? And we're going to get to your exciting new seminar in just a few minutes. Okay. First, while Strobel last year was on the pop apologetics end of the spectrum, this year I wanted to take a look at a more thoughtful, scholarly take. Do you know Professor Michael Heiser? He has a PhD in Hebrew Bible and Semitic Languages from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. You know, if I do know him, I don't remember that I know him. <laughs> Fair enough. I've queued up his lecture, Virgin Birth Prophecy, Jesus and the Old Testament. Okay, I'm ready. But tonight we want to focus on Ma uh, Matthew's use of Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7 more broadly, the whole virgin birth question. If the prophecy was for Ahaz, and it, that's what the text says, why would he assume, why would Ahaz assume the woman was a virgin? Does he have any reason to do that? If you actually read it in context, Isaiah's talking about a woman who's probably standing there in front of them and saying, but this woman's pregnant. If the prophecy was for Ahaz, number two, would he have expected the child was deity? Third, does the word translated virgin, Alma, mean virgin? Four, if the prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah's, and of course Ahaz's own day, if it was fulfilled in their lifetimes, how could Matthew quote it as referring to Jesus? I think you can already see that 
if someone wanted to be an antagonistic toward this uh, tenet of, of Christianity, of the Christian faith and doctrine, critical of the virgin birth, it's pretty easy to do that. Because all you got to do is go back to Isaiah 7 and read it and ask these questions and say, now you tell me when the prophecy was supposed to be fulfilled and who it was for. And it, it's, a very, it's very easy to sow the seeds of doubt about what Matthew's doing. You know, it's easy for us, on the other hand, to say, well, you know, God just told him, you know, hey, that prophecy over there, you, that, that, you need to apply that to Jesus. And in the context of inspiration, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't actually answer the other questions, is the point. So, the writer of this particular article uh, quotes a lot from a fellow named Bishop John Shelby Spong. I don't know if any of you have heard of Bishop Spong before. He was a uh, Episcopal priest and then a bishop who was not a scholar per se, but he was one of these people who was able to take biblical scholarship and make it relevant for a broader audience. He was not what you would consider to be a traditional believer. He didn't believe in a lot of the literal doctrines of the Christian church. He was still a bishop of the Episcopal church. And so I think people found him more credible than a lot of say, atheists or agnostics who are saying pretty similar things. He gets quoted practically every season uh, in Time and Newsweek and, you know, major news periodicals because they always have to truck out some sort of article about the Christmas season, you know, to, to sort of make fun of it. In this article, we have this paragraph, and here's sort of the crux of the matter. This text, Isaiah and, of course, Matthew, Isaiah 7, Matthew 2, has two problems. <clears throat> First, Matthew did not apparently read Hebrew, which is really a dumb thing to say. Well, he doesn't use the Hebrew Bible. He uses the Greek Bible. There's nothing in his text that suggests that he was a, he was a speaker, that he knew Hebrew. He's clearly highly educated in Greek. For one thing, he's not from Israel. I mean, we don't know of people at the time who knew Hebrew, who are outside. I mean, I guess some Jews outside might, but Jews outside of Israel were not reading Hebrew. They were reading Greek. And so it'd be like today. I mean, if you have some American, if I've got, you know, if I've got some guy two blocks down who's Jewish, you know, I don't expect him to be fluent. He, he speaks English. <laughs> so wherever Matthew was, he goes no indication of knowing he, and there'd be no reason that he would know. And I don't even know that he was Jewish, frankly. Maybe he might have been, but it, it's a debate point. First, Matthew apparently did not read Hebrew, so he quoted his text, or this text, from a Greek translation. <laughs> If he had gone to the Hebrew original, he would have discovered that the word virgin is not in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah used the Hebrew word alma, which means simply young woman. He did not use the word betula, which means virgin. Well, I think Spong's basically right. The word does not mean virgin. It means young woman. And of course, that does allow for the young woman to be a virgin. <laughs> but I mean, just, it's, it's not the word for virgin. There's another word for virgin in betula. And if... Isaiah wanted to say that she was, this woman was a virgin. He would use Bethulah. But the other problem is the verb tenses in Isaiah. The way it gets translated, I, I don't have exactly the King James, but I think a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, something like that. But it's a future tense. She shall conceive. So Hebrew doesn't have a past, present, and future tense. Their tenses are the perfect tense and the imperfect tense. A perfect tense is an action that's already been completed. You can use it for the future. If you're talking about an act in the future that's been completed, you'd use the perfect tense. 
An imperfect tense is a tense that's not been completed, something that hasn't happened yet. But it could be in the future, it could be in the past. So Isaiah uses the perfect tense, a completed action. The woman has conceived. So the woman's pregnant already. And so it's a young woman who has conceived. So it's not a prediction about a virgin who will conceive. Isaiah's text announces that the woman is with child, which hardly qualifies her to be a virgin. Of course, the presuppositions there are very transparent. When Isaiah was translated into Greek, the translators rendered alma with the Greek word parthenos. Only in that Greek word does the hint of virginity enter the text. And that is the key sentence. When the Greek translators of the Old Testament translated the passage, they used a word that could mean young woman, parthenos. But it's also a word that could mean a woman who's never had sex. And later it came to take on that meaning more strongly. And Matthew picks up on that and thinks it means a woman who's never had sex, even though Isaiah doesn't talk about a woman who's never had sex and doesn't talk about a prediction of a woman who's going to give birth later, but somebody who's living in his own time. And so it is based on a misunderstanding of Isaiah. The point is that Alma, when a, when a Hebrew Israelite, when an Israelite, someone familiar with the Hebrew Bible, when they saw the word Alma, heard it or read it, they certainly had the category possibility of virgin for that word. Now they know their own language well enough to know that it might not be virgin, but it is absolutely incorrect to say that it cannot be. That that meaning cannot be part of that word. It can mean virgin in the sense that many young women are virgin. <laughs> but the word doesn't mean virgin. It doesn't mean a woman who's never had sex. The woman could be a virgin, just like if you say today, yeah, I saw Miss Smith at the store. And you know, well, oh, that means she's a virgin, right? Because she used the word Miss. No, it doesn't she could be a virgin. I don't know. The second problem in their article with this text is that when Isaiah wrote it, the city of Jerusalem was under siege from the combined armies of the northern kingdom and Syria. Isaiah suggested that the birth of this child would be a sign to the king of Judah that his nation would not fall to these enemies whom Isaiah described as, quote, the tales of two smoking firebrands, unquote. A reference to a child born 800 years later would hardly have been relevant to that crisis. Well, I would agree with that. You know, if you're Ahaz and you're basically trembling in your boots and Isaiah comes up to you, I got great news. I got great news. Don't panic. 800 years from now, <laughs> it's like, what? I mean, come on. Oh, thanks. I feel so much better. (laughs) Uh, It's just not going to work. There's an original context for what he's saying. There is a cognate term, a related term in a different language. The language is Ugaritic for Alma. This word actually is very, very rare, and it refers to the sacred bride, and it's, it's, it's restricted to royal women and goddesses in that culture. Now, that was a pagan culture. It might mean that when Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, Behold, the Alma will conceive and bear a son, that he could have been talking about Ahaz's wife. If that's the case, if there was royalty involved with the woman, Why is that important for what Matthew? Mary is also in the line of David. So is Joseph. I mean, this is is something that Matthew, if this is what he was tracking on, it would have been a link 
back to Isaiah 7. I don't think that Matthew knew Ugaritic to begin with. I don't think Matthew knew Hebrew. He's using the Septuagint. And so I don't think that a word used in the 8th century BCE in Hebrew that has parallels in the Ugaritic language written somewhere else is, I don't think that's the best way to go about trying to figure out what Matthew meant. <laughs> wow. Okay, yeah, it's a stretch. The issue is what Alma meant. It's not an issue what some Ugaritic author meant somewhere else. Put yourself in Matthew's shoes. Is it reasonable to believe that Matthew and Mary never met? I mean, good grief, they lived with Jesus for three and a half years. Do you think he might have met his mother? Is it reasonable to believe that the disciples never heard Mary tell the story about how Jesus was born? Does that seem reasonable to you? No. What? What is he kidding that? What? Okay. So more than that, I think think imagining if Matthew was really the author of Matthew, maybe he's imagining that. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) You know, maybe... John was the author of Matthew, or maybe Paul was the author of Matthew. The book of Matthew never claims to be written by somebody named Matthew. And if anybody has any doubts about this, the only place in the Gospel of Matthew where the name Matthew occurs is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, with the calling of Matthew. Just read it and see whether this author's talking about himself. No. So, okay, so we're not going to get into that mess. Scholars typically date the Gospel of Matthew to the mid-80s of the Common Era. It might have been a little bit before that, it might have been a little bit after that. But if Jesus was born, say Jesus was born in the year 4 BCE, say his mother was 16, I don't know, she was 14. Okay, so she would have been born in, say, in what, 20 BCE. Okay, so is, are we supposed to imagine that Matthew is, that the author of Matthew has met her? He's writing this in the mid-80s. He's not from Palestine, by the way. He's not from Israel. He's a Greek-speaking Christian living in some other part of the world. How in the world would he have met Mary? And if she verified this to him, if she told him this, why doesn't he tell you what his source is? So it's like, oh, by the way, you know, Mary told him nothing, nothing like that. And so, no, I think, boy, huh? Okay, so I, that, I wouldn't say that's scholarship. I would say that's apologetics. And that's okay. If he wants to be an apologist, it's fine. We can talk about those terms too, but it's not a serious historical claim, I don't think. And then she gets to the part where... They had to take the child down to Egypt to protect him from Herod. And Matthew, then the lights are going on. Ding, 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 ding. And he starts thinking about Isaiah. It's like, like wow, you know, Davidic dynasty out of Egypt. Really, you know, virgin, virgin birth, holy cow, you know, virgin birth. Well, that's just like Alma. I mean, it's not quite the same, but it, it's like, it, it, it's, it, there's an analogy there. Look what God was up to. I'm going to put this down. So he's saying that the Christians already knew that Jesus was born of a virgin because mm-hmm. I guess Mary told everybody. And, and therefore, they would look for passages in the Old Testament that would show that a virgin had to give birth. That's, that, his, that is, that's his hypothesis, yes. Okay. Well, okay. So to begin with, if it was widely known that Jesus was born of a virgin, how do you explain the fact that it's mentioned nowhere except for Matthew and Luke? If this were a datum, from the life of Jesus, you would expect, for example, that our earliest gospel, Mark, might have known about it, or that John would have known about it, or Paul, who knew some of the apostles, would have known about it. None of them says anything about it. And so that really, that kind of explodes the idea that this is widely known. The early followers of Jesus are convinced that he is the Messiah, even though what happened to him is not what 
was supposed to happen to the Messiah, just the opposite of what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. He got, he got tortured to death by his enemies, which is just the opposite. So what they have to do is they have to find places in Scripture that seem to show that someone like Jesus is a plausible Messiah. And so they start finding places, and some of them work better than others. The, the virgin birth thing just doesn't work very well. Other passages don't work well either. I mean, the birth of Bethlehem is another one. We're coming out of Egypt, et cetera. Yeah, I don't think the idea that they all knew what was really going on in the life of Jesus, and then and then they found these passages, I don't think that works. I think they're finding the passages in order to support their beliefs in Jesus. And again, I'm back to either the critics don't get it, they don't want to get it. I'm going to let them pick. Because that's really what it comes down to. Matthew is not botching the New Testament. He's not goofing his way through the book. I don't think I'd put it that way. I mean, by our standards, by modern historical standards, when Matthew would have botched it in the sense that we don't interpret texts that way. But the way he's interpreting text is very common in in Jewish and in Gentile circles, where you, you find meanings in texts that are beyond what the author literally meant. And so in Matthew, it's a very complicated issue about how Matthew uses his Old Testament. What he does is he wants to show that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And so he's emphatic. And in 11 places in Matthew's gospel, he says, this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet. And sometimes what he means is prophet predicted something and Jesus did. So the prophet predicted that the same would come from Bethlehem, Jesus came from Bethlehem, boom. But in other times, what he means is that Jesus fulfilled the scripture in the sense that it had a, an original literal meaning that, just, that happened. But Jesus filled it full of meaning. He brought out the fuller meaning of it, and he fulfilled it in that sense. And so, for example, Jesus goes down to Egypt as an infant in Matthew's gospel, and then Joseph and Mary bring him back up after Herod's death. And Matthew says, that was to fulfill what was spoken of in the prophets. Out of Egypt have I called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11. And it's to refer originally to the children of Israel coming out at the Exodus, that the Exodus happened and the Son of God, Israel, comes out of Egypt. So Egypt is where God has called his son out. of. Matthew saying Jesus has fulfilled that. He's filled it with many because the salvation at the Exodus has now wrought salvation, not just for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, but all people. And so I don't think that's a botched interpretation. I think it's a kind of interpretation that modern interpreters would not use. But it doesn't mean it's botched. It just means it's a different mode of interpretation. All right. Well, that's the end of the lecture. And to fulfill the prophecy foretold at the start of this video, does anything we've been discussing with Dr. Heiser relate to your special Christmas season lecture? <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's clear in, in Matthew Luke, Jesus is born uh, of a virgin. His mother has never had sex. And so he's born supernatural. If you just go on you know, the Internet and look for virgin births in antiquity, You'll find all sorts of sites, not all of them by mythicists, but by some mythicists are among them who say that Christians are just stealing this motif from the pagan world, that you have all these people who are born of virgins, Romulus, Hercules, and Alexander the Great, whatever, you know, kind of give you the list of these people who are born of birds. And so what I'm going to deal with in this seminar is, is that true? The seminar is not directed, it's not dealing with mythicists at all, but it's dealing with this widespread claim about supernatural births in antiquity. It's absolutely true that you have instances in the ancient world where people talk about a, a divine being who got a woman pregnant. And so the person who's born is part human, part divine. That does happen in a number of cases. My question is, was any of those women a virgin? And according to the stories themselves. 
And if not, why do Christians start telling it this way? And what's different about this story from the other stories? And so that's what the seminar will be about. Well, that sounds amazing. And it's coming up fast. Sign up by December 14 in order to be part of the live Q&A. And sign up by midnight, December 16, for a special discount early bird pricing. But if those dates have passed, it's still a bargain-priced amazing deal, as the lecture is available for you to watch at your leisure in perpetuity. And it's delivered instantly. So any of the Airman courses would make an amazing last-minute gift for yourself or a loved one with an interest in a scholarly, sober look at Bible topics. When you use the link on screen tinyurl.com slash bartvirgin, you're also helping this channel, which I greatly appreciate in this season and every season. After you've signed up, tap on the thumbnail on screen to continue our look at Lee Strobel's Case for Christmas series, and I'll see you over there. Until next time, happy holidays. Later. Later.